Welcome back to Left Anchor. I'm Alexi the Greek. And I'm Ryan Cooper. Today we're welcoming uh, Alex Herbert, who is uh, a co-host of the Providence Leftist Radio Podcast. Um, and also a PhD candidate in Soviet environmental history. If I'm if I'm getting that right, is that correct? Super specific, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting stuff. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, I, I think there's a lot there, right? I, I mean, I mean, uh, honestly, the the degree is in like European history more broadly, but my focus is on uh, the Soviet Union with a theoretical focus on environmental history, which. Uh, as you said, you know, it's not something that we typically think of all that much uh, in, like, common circles, you know. But yeah. damn it, we're going to now. Yeah. We're going to do it. After yeah. after the BBC's <laughs> Chernobyl series, it's important that we that we go over this That's now. Right. <laughs> and so the question before the court is, uh, is Marxism technologically deterministic? We're going to hash this puppy out once and for all. Uh, no one will ever have to think about it ever again once we've, you know, sort of read definitive, reading. definitive conversation. We got it. <laughs> we have two two readings um, that, that, you know, sort of to, to prepare for the episode. Uh, we've got Friedrich Engels uh, on authority. It's like a little uh, like kind of just short, almost like an op ed. Um, and then uh, Nikolai Bukharin, um, the equilibrium between society, uh, which is a uh, society and nature, which is chapter five in his book, uh, Historical Materialism. Is that is that correct? Yeah, that's right. Uh, from 1921 is when he, he wrote it. Yeah, yeah. And so maybe just to get us started, I think most people probably know who Friedrich Engels is. If you're listening to this podcast, you know, he was Marx's like best bud, uh, you know, constantly like bailing him out of financial difficulties. Uh, you know, his, his, his sort of co-editor, uh, co-writer of the Communist Manifesto, organized a lot of his books after he died because Marx couldn't finish anything unless there was like a fire under his ass. Um, and so Capital Volume 2 and 3 were basically assembled after the fact, after Marx died, by Engels. Um, but can you tell us a little bit about uh, Bukharin? Because uh, I think he's quite a bit less known, uh, you know, somewhat somewhat famous in his own right, but it's not on the level of Marx and Engels. Yeah, uh, not a problem. And to, uh, to a certain extent, Bukharin is almost more famous for his death than anything else. Yep. Uh, he, he was executed during the purges for, uh, at, after a show trial that labeled him a right, uh, oppositionist against Stalin. Um, and, and, you know, uh, people love to, to point that out that Bukharin was a traitor and he was found to be a traitor. And so he was shot, uh, for being a traitor, but, you know, there's some there's some uh, questions about uh, the validity of that, but basically, Bukharin is one of the oldest Bolshevik theorists. Uh, he he's in he's in the Bolshevik faction uh, from its beginning, uh, pretty much. Uh, is a revolutionary in 1905 in the revolutions that happened in in Russia. He he lives abroad. He lives in New York for a little bit while Trotsky is living in New York. The revolution happens and he comes back to Russia. Uh, and Lenin himself recognizes Bukharin as one of the most important theorists for the Bolshevik movement. Uh, most listeners might be familiar with Lenin's, uh, imperialism, the highest form of, of capitalism. Uh, Bukharin helped create the ideas for that and, and sort of, uh, uh, brandished that those ideas for Lenin, uh, to write it. Uh, although he didn't ghost write it or anything like that. Um, yeah. and he also, Bukharin also helped Stalin write, um, probably Stalin's most famous theoretical text on, uh, Marxism and nationalities. Uh, I like to point out all the time that Stalin was not that much of a theorist. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I like to talk a lot of shit about Stalin, uh, although I will say that, you know, I, I understand that he is reemerging in, in leftist circles and uh, people are recognizing the breakthroughs of his industrialization and collectivization, despite the, the, the human costs and the environmental costs to that. Uh, so I don't want to alienate those people, but I do. You're, you're triggering Ryan right now. You're triggering Ryan. <laughs> but... No, I- <laughs> 
Go ahead. I, I, it seems fair to me to say, you know, maybe just to sort of like cap off the like the origin story that, you know, Bukharin was one of like thousands of people who like basically, you know, sort of disagreed with Stalin and to disagree with Stalin in any way was like a death sentence. Uh, even even sometimes a death sentence if you just uh, uh, didn't agree with him in the right way. Yeah. Um, and, that you know, uh, you know, the, be, the, him being such a loyal, you know, communist for so many years, I think, tends to show you what the what the 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 just bloody atrocity of the Great Purge and how it was directed at the party itself, um, yeah. you know, in a, in a kind of. You know, I mean, at a minimum, com- com- like kind of psychotic fashion. Um, what What's so, really? Oh, go ahead. No, no, uh, please. What's really tragic about it is that a lot of the the ideas that we all know and recognize from the first era of Bolshevik rule stemmed in part from Bukharin's own thinking and working with people like Lenin and Stalin. So even. Even Stalin's idea of socialism in one country, uh, Bukharin actually works out the theoretical basis of that. Stalin kind of just says the catchphrase uh, and uses it as a justification for Soviet power, uh, but Bukharin actually makes sense of it, right? He theorizes it. And he did the same thing for Lenin's new economic policy, uh, which begins after the Civil War. And that's when this book on historical materialism comes out. Um, because basically, as we'll talk about, uh, the new economic policy was an admittance on the part of Lenin and other Bolsheviks that things had moved too fast, uh, that society and the Soviet economy were not capable, were not able to, to catch back up, um, through force and that in order to do that, in order to rebuild the Soviet economy, certain forms of petty agricultural and artisan trade had to be permitted. And the exception is that when the state wanted to step in, the state could step in. They had the right to do that. Um, but it was still an admittance that, okay, these, this limited form of capitalism has to be allowed to exist, uh, for some period of time, uh, an undisclosed period of time. Which is why when collectivization, when Stalin announces collectivization, Bukharin is, is not, I mean, he does talk a lot of shit about Stalin in personal letters, but what he's saying against collectivization is you're, you're moving too fast. Uh, you're, you're being non-Leninist. You're trying to push, uh, an element to force an element into development that, that, you know, maybe, Maybe slowing down as NEP was supposed to do is how we actually do this. Um, so that's sort of the context for historical materialism as it comes out. And can you explain to the audience who might not know what collectivization was? Collectivization was the, the, essentially the nationalization of, uh, Russian agriculture, peasant agriculture, uh, which was a huge deal because um, part of the Bolshevik promise in 1917 was to give the land to the peasants. And the peasantry understood, or at least they thought that that meant, uh, they thought that meant that, uh, they would get some sort of like private property or that they would be able to kind of, uh, till their own land. Uh, but, and that did happen for a little bit, right? When the Bolsheviks first came to power during the Civil War, the Bolsheviks gave peasants land, took it from landowners, dished it out to the poor peasants. Uh, and then now Stalin comes and says, well, actually, the state is going to take this land back. Uh, you're going to have a portion of what you get from it, but we're also going to take a lot of it uh, for purposes of industrialization, for urban growth, for the army, which in a country of paranoia like the Soviet Union was at this time, um, you know, making sure that the army is always supplied and, and on the ready is key, is important for Stalin. Uh, so collectivization was the nationalization of peasant agriculture, uh, in essence. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, I mean, if folks aren't aware, this was like a sort of 
shattering catastrophe for Soviet agriculture, you know, like like led to an absolute decrease in the amount of food that was being produced. So you had these huge requisitions at the same time as the amount of food and especially the number of livestock because people in protest like slaughtered their their livestock. And, you know, in places like Kazakhstan, uh, what is today Kazakhstan, you know, they kill like three quarters of all their cows and sheep and whatnot. And so, um, you know, there was just like a huge shortage of food. And in, in Ukraine, uh, you know, something like like three to six million people died from starvation, um, you know, kind of a backfire, but sort of getting off off track there a little bit. Um, Bukharin, th- this this essay, uh, you know, the, this chapter, rather, the book Equilibrium Between uh, Society and Nature strikes me as like a pretty like it's a it's a very clearly written and uh, and like uh, lucid uh, ex like explanation of how, you know, a fairly orthodox Marxist in, you know, the late 19th, the early 20th century would view the relationship between the economy and, um, you know, how, uh, you know, like how societies are structured in the broadest sense. But uh, he doesn't like it's it's not a it's not like a sort of cartoon you know, version of the like classic base superstructure picture, you know, where you sort of have this materialist turn crank where, you know, like you have your relations of production and it goes, you know, bingity bingity boom, like like feudalism, capitalism, socialism, just like everything happens on autopilot. Nobody has is, to do anything. Is, is that the sound of, of history progressing, Ryan? <laughs> bingity, Can bingity you boom. tell us the sound of that again? Yeah, yeah. And <laughs> and so um Boom is the classless society. Boom. Yeah, the, like he's he's saying, like you know, in the last analysis, that the uh, you know, like the relations of production, your economic system is going to be sort of the foundation and the like uh, the most important element in how the society is organized. But there is a lot of choice and there's a lot of contingency in uh, that process. And it can go in a lot of different directions. I'm, I'm, you think that's a fair summary? Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, Bukharin is very much uh, a dogmatic Marxist theorist. Uh, <laughs> he, yeah. he, he's always, uh, he always considers himself to be elaborating on what Marx said, even though Lenin – uh, once noted that Bukharin doesn't know anything about dialectics, but, uh, Bukharin, I mean, I think that you can see in this chapter that he, he really does, uh, but he, he complicates them in some, uh, in some key ways, some key Marxist dialectics. And in this, in this chapter, I think it's through nature and the role of nature, which yeah. stands out. I don't know. I mean, what did you all make about how he talked about nature? Is there- yeah, the I mean, well, on on the one hand, I, I think what st- uh, stuck out to me the most was his historical discussion in terms of Marxism, um, because he's he was saying that uh, uh, he just sort of references, I guess, the fact that um, you know you had antiquity back, you know, ancient Greeks, ancient Romans, and they were at a you know, a, a fairly advanced sort of technological plane. And then you had the fall of the Roman Empire in Europe and a, and a decline in the sort of standards, like the, the sophistication of the, of the, you know, technology, the relations of production. Um, and that suggests that, you know, politics is very important to how the, uh, you know, how the material basis of society uh, actually progresses. And then if you just have a sort of semi random circumstance, like the, you know, you have a big empire, you got roads going everywhere, you got aqueducts, you got lots of engineering projects, but then like it all just like just fucking falls apart for one reason or another, then the material standard of production can really decline quite rapidly. And there's a lot of, I think today there's a sort of contrarian argument that like the so-called dark ages were not actually that dark. But I think if you actually look at the human indicators, the level of population, the amount of like 
you know, uh, uh, iron and lead that is being actually mined. You know, like the sophistication of society actually did decline quite precipitously after from like 500 to 1000, then started to come back up again. Um, and so that seems to me like a pretty, like an interesting little, like, uh, you know, like a, a fairly nuanced take on how, um, uh, how human decisions, how human actions and just the sort of like developments of politics and history can have just decisive influence on, uh, you know, the material economic structures. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I also thought it was, no, it, I thought it was super interesting actually how he construed, uh, our relationship to nature as, being bound up with the organizing of our social relations and the degree to which we're productive or not. Right. Like, so like, you know, if you just simply, uh, first of all, the interesting thing that I, that I thought that people don't think about as much is, you know, the construal of raw materials as not just nature, but as man's use of nature and, and the need to actually like mm. make tools to like dig out the, the coal. And, and so, so like, first of all, like technology is at the beginning of production because it's the way we relate to nature. It's the way that we use nature. And that is the beginning of, of development and production. Uh, and, and then from there, he goes on to show in an interesting way, the, the way that we organize ourselves and, and use these tools uh, and technological advances to um, simply produce enough to survive, to produce, you know, way more or, or to not produce enough. And, and, and I think it's an interesting kind of uh, way to show how inextricable our relationship to nature is from, uh, as Ryan said, these political questions of, of social relationships. So, yeah. So, so tell us a bit about what, what, what you saw in this as enlightening kind of uh, a leftist understanding of, you know, the relationship between, um, you know, what I guess the, the hip language today is the Anthropocene or whatever, right? Like, like the, the understanding <laughs> our, our, our connection to nature and our, our, our kind of relationship to each other and nature at the same time, right? Yeah. Uh, so I think that both of your readings of this is absolutely on point. Uh, the only thing that I would stress is his use, his repeated use of the word equilibrium. Um, and so if we go back to the original question of, of the episode, is Marxism a technologically deterministic doctrine? Uh, I think Bukharin here is saying, no, not necessarily, because as you both pointed out, there is to a certain extent, uh, production, social production does, uh, play a huge role in this. But for Bukharin, as he lays out in the beginning, uh, nature, right, right like water itself, uh, as a mode of transport, as a form of energy, uh, its supply or its absence plays a role in what I like to imagine as a sort of triangle, triangular equilibrium, where you have society and nature, that's an equilibrium, which is defined, which is indicated or kind of made, made known through technology, right? Technology is both uh, what we are and what we're not. And so if you think of it in terms of the Anthropocene, which is where I'm going, um, then, uh, you know, Elon Musk just recently announced that if somebody that he's willing to pay a hundred million dollars, uh, to whoever can invent carbon sequestration, right? Carbon sequestering technology. If that's not technologically deterministic, then I don't know what is, according to what all these Cold War warriors used to blame Marxism for being, right? That technology is, technology alone is what will save us from our own, uh, ecological doom, right? And Bukharin here is not saying that at all. Bukharin here is saying that there has to be some kind of equilibrium, uh, between society and nature and technology tells us it's kind of like a diagnosis, right? You can, you can measure the progress of a social formation. You can measure, um, the health of nature based on the technology that is or is not in existence. So back to what Ryan was saying, his like historicism, right? The, the examples that he lays out, he gives, there are three examples that really stood out to me, um, of like what he calls the kind of, uh, dislodging of this equilibrium. What happens when one of the corners of that triangle is 
broken from the equilibrium. Yet the first option is that if the equilibrium works and everything is balanced, then people are working for their necessities for what they need. Uh, and, you know, I, I have friends who don't know or don't really care that much about theory. And they're always telling me to like provide an actual example. Uh, you know, uh, uh, pre-contact Native Americans might be an example in which uh, their relationship to the natural world that they inhabited was balanced, right? Uh, we had no, we have no indication of uh, forest desiccation or, or anything like that under pre-contact Native Americans. Uh, and we know that they took from the land what they needed for their social structure, for their social formation. Uh, that's balance. The other possibility is uh, an overabundance uh, of raw materials, which Bukharin says, if you go into a land, you can imagine like, um, uh, I don't know, um, uh, Europeans during the scramble for Africa, right? If you go into a land seeking resources and you what you encounter is an abundance, you're going to pillage the hell out of that place, right? Until the environment itself becomes sickly, uh, which leads to, to his third uh, example, which is the point in which the environment is the one that is dislodged from the equilibrium, whether it's human created or just people settle in an environment that, you know, is in, if you settle in, I don't know, the Arctic or something like that, there's really, you can't really get much from that. Uh, but in this third case, I think is where it relates to the Anthropocene, to, to climate change, which is we've inhabited yeah. this, this place for so long and we've been pillaging the resources from it that now our environment is kind of sickly. Well, not kind of, it, it really is sickly. Um, pollution, both, uh, in the oceans and in the air, feedback loops that have been activated in terms of methane gas and greenhouse gases. I mean, the, the list of, the list goes on. And so this text for me is sort of, it's really interesting because we go back to that original question of technological determinism. Bukharin here is saying that is not what we're getting at at all. We're getting at some kind of equilibrium that needs to be established here. And, and this is what Marxism can bring. This is what Marxism has to offer. And in fact, Marxism has to be thoughtful about our relationship to nature because he very explicitly says, you know, man acts upon nature, but then nature acts upon man, right? Mm -hmm. Like, like he, this is part of the equilibrium. There's, there, there is a, uh, a dynamic that goes both ways. And, and boy, if, if we aren't experiencing with climate change, the kind of tragic consequences of capitalism not caring about what you know, what, what, you, what that feedback loop looks like when we just pillage and extract and, and, uh, produce and consume, um, what that then redounds to us in the form of, of all these, you know, terrible problems that are both, uh, you know, sea level rises and climate refugees, right? Like, so this is the other, other yeah. interesting thing, right? The consequences are both natural and social in ways that are, that are to totally bound up together, right? Yeah. The, the social consequences is a point that, uh, not for lack of severity or interest, but it's one that, uh, just as an environmental historian, sometimes I lose focus of because he does, even in the end, talk about, uh, racism or race being used as an excuse of, of why this equilibrium doesn't necessarily work. And, and his defense is that, uh, you know, racism is a social factor that, that bounces off of, as you were saying, nature and technology itself, if that makes sense. I, one of my favorite parts, you know, it's not the most like it's 100 years ago this is written. So it's not the most, quote unquote, woke uh, treatment of racial issues. But at the same time, he has these very clever lines where, where he's like, this analysis, this race theory, it's it's very tautological. He doesn't use the word tautology, but it's like <laughs> it's like you're you're saying that these oppressive divisions are because of race, and then the explanation for why people are in these positions is because of race. I think you know he's implying. I think you're just making this shit up, dude. Right? Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. That's interesting. Um. Yeah. Where? What was I? Oh, yeah. The <clears throat> the in that vein. Um. So, something I thought was quite interesting, uh, re, you know, regarding the sort of climate change debate was how 
um, he talks about how there's a, you know, the cities of the world tend to be bounded in a very particular zone, like a climate zone. Um, uh, you know, like the biggest and richest cities in the world are all like in a particular zone of temperature. And he doesn't talk about global warming at all because I don't think it's crossed his radar. I mean, I think that, uh, who is it like, uh, Arrhenius or whatever it had, had, uh, at least postulated a theory of global warming in like the 1870s. But by this point, you know, it was not a, it was not on the scientific radar of, of most people. Um, but, you could see, you could just plug it into his schema, you know, to just be like, yeah. So if like the people depend on the, the, uh, you know, natural environment being this particular temperature and that temperature goes up by one degree, like or two degrees or three or four, then that's going to radically displace the, uh, you know, the, the, um, natural sort of uh substrate that is supporting all of the all these uh, human societies and you know you you can i think you could say like going with this sort of like loose jointed semi semi determinism you know you could say like well you know if people are using this energy then that like uh, from carbon fuels, then that's going to provide a certain like sort of dialectical influence. But like there's room for choice and room for like trying to move away to sort of, you know, uh, even a capitalist system that's sort of trying to protect itself. You know, I, I feel like you, you could write a sort of like brute marks, like a brute sort of deterministic sort of script where you say like capitalism, profit, energy, that's all just going to sort of feed on itself until it blows up the climate and everyone dies. And like there, that's, uh, the, the, um, that's why there are no aliens. That's just what happens uh, to Damn. every planet. That's our determinism. That's a mechanical death spiral. But I think a more considered, you know, reading of this essay would suggest that there, there's a lot of, um, room for, maneuver in there there's a lot of way that political choice can influence how uh, societies get their energy and how they uh you know yeah what sort yeah. of emissions I mean, tell they me produce. what you think tell me what you think alex but but to go off of ryan's uh point there it seems like this is a really good example of a theorist who who is showing how interconnected everything is but that doesn't mean it's not contingent and there isn't choice involved. It right. just means that when choices are made, they have all these cascading effects, right? Right. Yeah. Uh, the interrelatedness, the codependence of of that triangle that I pointed out, I think is is the key here. And and Ryan, I mean, right. the the word maneuver is a good maneuvering is a is a good word that um, you know. Uh, Political social formations can respond to crises, whether they're social, technological, or environmental, right? You, you respond by adjusting the other two angles of the triangle, um, which uh, are all approaches to understanding the Anthropocene from within the, the field of history. Um, right now in environmental history, a big project is trying to determine the date in which we can say the Anthropocene began, right? Uh, not a specific mm -hmm. date, not a specific day, but like, you know, this, in this time period, it began. Um, and the first one that, you know, a lot of people say is the industrial revolution, right? You had, uh, the, the cotton gin, the spinning jenny, the steam engine, all these things that came up within the, the British industrial revolution. Um, but, you know, in my mind, that kind of puts the onus of responsibility on technology, right? You're, as opposed to looking at the equilibrium itself and trying to look at, you know, it as a whole, you're saying, this is where technology broke off and this is where it's wrong. As opposed to the other explanation, which is post-World War II, uh, where consumer, uh, habits, mass production of pretty much fucking everything in our lives, uh, really kicks off the emissions of CO2. This is the beginning of like the real jump in the CO2 bell curve and stuff like that. Puts the onus of responsibility on society itself. It's our consumer habits, right? It's, it's the social cultural habits of, of the country that are to blame for this. So yeah, I'm like, I'm, I'm really interested in trying to think of, 
an origin of the Anthropocene that can consider all three of those equations, of those corners of that triangular equilibrium as Bukharin kind of uh, presents it to us, right? When is the point in which uh, th those three corners kind of just diverge from each other in such a way that now we are where we are in this world where billionaires are offering $100 million for a technological fix, the working class, that is us, are saying, oh, all we need is a social revolution and we'll fix the whole thing. Uh, again, society, technology, but where's nature in this? Where is our new conceptual cultural relationship to the natural world? Where does that fit into a revolution? That's where I'm kind of thinking right now. I think that it's hard to, um, to disentangle. So, because, right, like, I, I'm with you that mass production led to, to the kind of consumerism where, look, you can, you can do capital accumulation in lots of ways. But if the primary way is to get people to consume a lot of shit, right? And that in turn requires literally just producing a lot of shit. And, and that re requires a lot of natural resources and, 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 and fucking like extracting minerals and oil and, and coal, right? Um, that seems super fundamental to, to this process. But of course, like the ideology of capitalism that begins with capital accumulation in some sense is the genesis, right? Because like, uh, that's when we stop thinking, well, as human beings, what's good for, you know, it, it, it inverts the question of who are we? How should we live together? All these things are subordinate now to, to whatever, whether it's technology or capital accumulation, whatever those things demand society will, will do. And so, so, so I think like in some sense, uh, you know, as theorists, right? Like, like that's the thing that happens to lead, it could have been a number of things, but that happens to lead to the kind of production and consumption cycle um, that was disastrous and that, that brought us to the climate change place right now. I don't know. What do you, what do you think of that? Yeah, again, I think, uh, the, your, your point about subordination is, uh, uh, is really fitting. I mean, we, our, as far as I'm concerned in the current stage we in, whether we are in, whether you want to call it late capitalism or just high capitalism or just capitalism itself, whatever it is, uh, there is late, late capitalism is, is nice and optimistic. Uh, it's, I feel warm and fuzzy about that because it suggests it's almost done. Yeah. <laughs> I never thought of it that way, but yeah, I think you're right. Uh, no, that for my in my mind, the the idea, as you said, is subordination. Right? Nature is subordinate to us, which is messed up when you think of the debates that went on during the Cold War uh, with uh, Stalin's industrialization as sort of the focal point, where Western analysts were pointing to the Soviet Union and saying, "Look, that's Marxism. Marxism." destroys nature. It has to because it is technologically deterministic. It has no other solution other than technology. Uh, but now we find ourselves as sort of like a mirror image of that, right? Where uh, we are the ones that can't imagine getting out of climate change if not for finding a $100 million uh, sequestering technology provided by Elon Musk or something like that. Uh, so it sort of flipped the script on that Cold War debate that happened between uh, Soviet Marxists and Western liberal Cold War warriors who, you know, needed all the theoretical bases that they could muster up to point the finger at the Soviet Union and say, you are responsible for uh, draining the RLC or Chernobyl, the disaster that happened at Chernobyl or diverting rivers and, and draining whole bodies of water, stuff like that. Uh, where, you know, we're at our point now where we're kind of guilty of <laughs> doing exactly that, you know? Yeah. Much worse, much worse, much worse. Yeah. But the, uh, the, the, Interesting thing, um, I don't know, another suggestion I guess I drew out of this this essay, which, uh, you know, maybe you could tell me if this is like sort of illegitimate, I guess, or whether you agree with this sort of reading. Um, you know, it's like if you're, uh, Bukharin talks a lot about how, you know, like, like the, uh, 
differing circumstances can give different societies different options about how they sort of arrange their, uh, you know, production. You know, it's like so if you're on the subsistence frontier, if you're working at, like all your free time just to just to produce what you need to live, you sort of have no options. But if you either have some sort of technological innovation or you move to a much more productive like region, now you have, you know, if you're if your, uh, you know, production per unit work goes up by two, then that gives you a, a choice, you know, and that gives you like the possibility of, uh, you know, uh, creating new wants like and having like luxuries and having free time to pursue arts and culture and so on. And, you know, you look at the history of economic growth in the developed world over the last, uh, you know, like 100 years or something like that. You know, pretty consistent, uh, you know, I mean, bracketing the Great Depression and other things uh, like, a, you know, like just going from end to end, a consistent history of growth like these like countries like in uh, Western Europe, the United States, Canada, Korea, Japan, these countries are all much richer now than they were uh you know after World War II. Um so that gives a you know that that uh, process of growth that that opens up that frontier that 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 menu of options that Bukharin is talking about. And you look at the United States and the options is the the option that we have effectively chosen as a polity is same amount of work, produce more shit, eat up more uh, yeah, carbon right. fuels, and pollute more, uh, pr- put more carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. Our working hours have not really declined at all since like 1980. But you look at other polities, you look at uh, uh, especially Japan, actually. Uh, Denmark, France, Norway, you know, these countries have cut their working hours through deliberate policy by a very significant amount. Um, you know, uh, uh, Norway, Denmark, France, they have all cut their working hours by over four, 400 hours per year on average. So that's over 10 weeks. Japan cut theirs by over 500. Um, so, you know, you're talking about, not just like, you know, a couple of days, but weeks and months of extra time every year that you can do, you can spend not do, not working, you know, basically taking your technological dividend and, and saying, we're going to have more time to goof off and, uh, produce less shit, you know, and like, so that, that like, I, yeah, like, where do you stick this in Marxism per se? But go ahead. Let's, 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 Let's break this down because first we should explain how um, Bukharin is correct. And, and, and this – I'm going to relate this to – I don't know, um, Alex, if, you, if you've read Keynes' letter to his grandchildren, which is also around this time, like 100 years ago, right? Yeah. Um, you know, the, and, and of course, Marx talks about this, right? Like the, the way that um, human labor ends up creating machines – and there's a lot of human labor that gets, gets into creating those machines and producing those machines – um, that ends up making the same task, you know, require half the human labor time, right? Like, like these technological advances allow us to kind of like accumulate, right? What, what could be this gift to future societies in terms of leisure time because of the way that more production happens faster based, right? So, so just so the audience understands that technological advance makes the same person in the future able to do much more with less computer chips, all that, all these advances, right? Mm-hmm. But what Keynes thought, right? Keynes thought that in a hundred years, that would mean that we would use technology that way to give ourselves the leisure, right? Like he, he didn't understand that the, the function of ideology in capitalism because he just thought, look, right now we've got to do all this terrible stuff and, and, and put capital accumulation as the priority. And then in a hundred years, my grandkids will have all the free time in the world. So, the reason that didn't happen, the reason we have climate change now, right, I, I, I would suggest, is because Keynes didn't get what Marx understood and what Gramsci especially, I think, understood about the, the hegemonic uh, role of ideology in not letting us, again, flip that subordination and put the demos, the democracy, in charge of the technology. Instead, capital accumulation kept being in charge. So, so yeah, so how would you respond to these kind of realities um, and, and how, you know, 100 years ago, seems like people saw what we should be doing. We should take advantage 
and gift our future generations the leisure time, but we just don't, right? We just produce more and consume more. Yeah. Uh, I think that that is uh, perfectly put, which is why um, in the in uh, in the, the the three sort of scenarios that I listed that Bukharin talks about, which is why I think we're in sort of the third scenario, right? Which is that uh, there was a period, there may have been a period of balance. There may have been a period where uh, we allowed a culture to develop. We allowed technology to develop to the point of iPhone X's or whatever. That was a joke where we've right. <laughs> the, the iPhone X is, is long, long. Old uh, hat. Yeah. Get yeah. with the program, you damn, damn commie. <laughs> uh, you know, we, you should, you should know, Alex, that, that our last guest we recorded with had a flip phone. So I'm just, just saying that's the new, that's the new leftist thing is the, the flip phones, man. I, <laughs> I can't. I can't. I don't want to. Because remember texting with those things? It sucked. It sucked. <laughs> oh, the T9. Miserable. Yeah, I got really good at it, though, for a while. I... You were really saying, sick. though. Um, the, the, the third sort of scenario that uh, Bukharin lays out, which is uh, the point in which um, society reflects nature in, in its sort of sickly state, right? Uh uh, I, I have a quote here that let us further suppose that a highly developed society with a rich mental culture and the most varied wants, an infinite number of different branches of production with arts and sciences in full bloom suddenly finds difficulty in satisfying its needs. Uh, production will be curtailed. The standard of living will go down. The flourishing arts and sciences will wither. Mental life will be impoverished. Society, unless its lowering of its standard is the result of merely temporary causes, which climate change is not a temporary cause, will be barbarianized. It will go to sleep. Uh, that's why I think uh, the, the idea of the Anthropocene, of climate change itself, is literally the realization of that third scenario that Bukharin is talking about, that we've re literally reached a point in which uh, the more that we produce, the more that we expect out of this world, the more sickly it becomes. The less we're able to produce, the worsening that social relations get. Uh, and you know, I'm not, I'm not entirely clear about what he means by like go to sleep. Does that mean that it's dormant or, you know, but at least we can assume that what he means is that it kind of disappears in a way, you know, it, it goes, I don't know, to sleep. Yeah, like in the in the dark age, then the Middle Ages, yeah. five hundred eighty to one thousand. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think I w I would say you know, there's a sort. I th I would draw a contrast, you know, between like like production that that is that is uh you know based on fossil fuel energy and production that is not based on that is based on renewable energy of some kind. Right. You know, because like that's sort of like theoretically sustainable in a way that just like continuing to spew out carbon production, uh, carbon fueled production is, is not, I think. And, and, um, yeah. but nevertheless, also, there, right. yeah. there's a point there's that I think it's, it's, uh, I mean, Bukharin doesn't make this point explicitly. You know, he, he talks about like how, like in his sort of schema, I guess he doesn't draw it out exactly, but it's sort of like if you have a high level of production, uh, then like you will sort of automatically have a lot of arts and sciences. I think that's not quite obvious, you know, like, like it's sort of a precondition to having like, uh, uh, you know, like a flourishing cultural sector. Like you need a fundamental basis of, of, uh, production for that to happen, but. I think it's not an automatic process. And I think one thing that could actually sort of assist that along would be to sort of try to like, uh, deliberately ratchet down the level of, uh, uh, the level of, of work and production through that, the process I was talking about earlier. Uh, you know, to say that like, 
we could, you know, if we just like re- like drive our labor force participation rate up to the highest possible level and get everyone working 80 hours a week and just like driving in circles the maximum amount of time, you know, to burn up all of the gas that's being like uh, produced in the oil wells across the country, like that would sort of j- jack up our GDP. But, you know, like we, we sort of reached a point where that's really not necessary. And so if you had like policies to sort of wrench down the 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 level of uh consumption in the sense of like like i'm going to work and getting money and buying stuff with that money and that's going through and like the process of circulation mcm uh and 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 so on um it's sort of like trying to interrupt or or like at least sort of like sand it down slightly uh, that would leave, I think, a little bit more flourishing space, like for, for people. It's like to have arts and, uh, I mean, I guess especially culture, but maybe also science, you know, like these things are not just exclusively the province of professionals and academics. Like it's about whether, you know, people have time outside of work, uh, to do those sorts of things. And, you know, that I, I guess again, you know, like it's kind of, it's kind of up to us in a sense, uh, through our janky ass constitution. Um, but you know, uh, uh, if there does happen to be a revolution, you know, that may be sort of first on the agenda, eight hours, eight hours for, for what we will not enough, 10 hours, 12 hours for what we will. That's what I say. Three day work week. Who's with me, boys. Can I, I'm definitely with that. Uh, can I put it a different way? Uh, sure. What, exactly what you just said. If the nature corner of that triangle is out of whack, if we are in our moment of of climate change, uh, then it's on society and technology to step up, right, and catch up with where nature is or that's adjust right. to it accordingly. Uh, and that's sort of the Bukharan response, right? And, you know... I know that there's probably some people listening that like are either weirdly against the Green New Deal or just don't think that it goes far enough or, you know, they have problems with it, which I totally understand. And I, I tend to agree with you. But then what this becomes sort of is an argument in defense of the Green New Deal, uh, in the sense that, uh, at least that is recognizing that society, social, conceptions of the environment, our relation to the natural world, as well as the technology that's embedded in our social relations are the things that now need to step up. Uh, and this is, you know, for sure, for, for, for lack no, of, I think the green, the green new deal, it's a great example actually of something that is considering the relation of production. I mean, tying a job guarantee and Medicare for all to, environmental reform like that is exactly what Bukharin is talking about in a certain sense isn't it like yeah. it's like wait a minute you guys have to we have to think all these things together right like and, and this is really interesting because I haven't thought of the Green New Deal this way before but it's literally doing that it's like look people need to eat for sure people need to have their necessities they need to be able to like they can't worry about going bankrupt if they go to the doctor or they have an emergency um Let's make that environmentally friendly and also democratize understanding what's needed in our communities and how to combat these problems that we've created for ourselves right. with capitalism, right? So I, it, it's not enough, but it's certainly the right direction, right? There's a cultural campaign that has to happen that forces us to reconceive and reevaluate our understand to – you know, whether you call it nature or the environment or the wilderness or whatever the hell is out there, yeah, uh, right. we need to think about it differently. That, that the, those pristine totally. landscapes shouldn't just be national parks. They shouldn't just be something that, uh, is, is also man-made. It should be something that we live, that we, right. that we exist in kind of harmony with, not to, not to sound like a hippie, but, here, here we are. <laughs> no, I think that's right. No, I, we forget. Look, I, I think there is, you know, within the industrial revolution and capitalism the, and the alienation that Marx talks about is related to the alienation of thinking that we are not part of we, 
we're literally fucking born out of the world. We, we, we're not like dropped into the earth or something like from somewhere else. We, we grow out of the earth the way that apples come from trees. Like literally, we are natural in that sense, right? But we like to think ourselves like dichotomized against it. Na- like nature is something else and we're something else. And we do that with each other. Like, no, you're not human, right? Like, like this is something weird that, that, that we do for, for power reasons. But like part, I think of, of what leftism offers is the idea of embracing difference without thinking yourself distinct in a way that then relates to hierarchy and domination, right? Cause we're all really bound up together. We're bound up with nature and each other in an important way. And, and, you know, what one route, the route to fascism is, is to think I'm special because I'm white. I'm special because I'm human. I'm spe- right. Like I'm special because I'm a man. The route of leftism is no, no, no. We're all different, but we're all equal. And nature and animals are all part of that community that can only flourish together. Right. Cause the, the, those are the two paths, socialism and barbarism for me. Yeah. You and that annoying urban raccoon have more in common than you think. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> it's true. Uh, uh, yeah. Um, uh, so I'm going to drop a bombshell on the sort of historicization of Bukharin that we did in the beginning of this. Uh, this kind of thinking is what got him ultimately in trouble and branded as a right uh, oppositionist. Um, because if you apply what we're talking about in terms of climate change and, and the effect on, on society and nature, Bukharin was saying this is what forced collectivization, this is what forced industrialization would do to the Soviet Union. And that's why in order to do these things, there has to be a kind of an equal moving of the chess pieces, you know. Uh, but, you know, to Stalin, that, that kind of uh, moderation wasn't, wasn't enough. Uh, or wasn't wasn't fast enough for him. And do you think that relates to your piece? Let, let's get to the piece on, uh, from Angles on authority. Uh, how how I don't know if that's the way you wanted to fit it in, but it's an interesting uh, an interesting piece. Um, so yeah, so tell us what you had in mind with this one. With this one, uh, you know, as as Ryan said in the beginning, Angles is like the the left or the right hand of Marx. I don't know. Maybe Marx has his own right hand, so Angles is the left right hand. I don't know. <laughs> uh, uh, but anyway, they're they're he's uh, Marx's sugar daddy, and and you know everyone knows that. Um, yeah. Uh, but the what's so interesting? This is a letter that he wrote. In response to anarchists, actually, uh, in response to people like Bakunin, who are arguing that, like, the problem with everything is authority. Authority itself, that's the, that's the root of all evil. And, and Engels in this is saying, actually, authority exists everywhere around us. And this is how we sort of bring it back to what Bukharin was saying, that Nature has its own authority, right? Nature provides us with an authority in and of itself. And so part of what Engel says in this is, uh, you know, let's take a step back and think about the operating of a train, for example. Uh, it is bound by time to a certain extent, right? It, you, you can have people work on it, but it is bound by things that are outside of immediate human control, it's still, it will always take a certain amount of time for one train to get to point A to point B, regardless of who's running it, because technology will only respond to nature in that way. Uh, so I think that this letter from Engels uh, not only ties Bukharin's idea into the literal heart of Marxism in such a real evident way, uh, but it's also really interesting to think about the way that Engels is thinking about authority itself, which is different than how no, we, we normally it, do. It's super interesting, right? Because like basically the, the idea here is that, you know, if you call autonomy basically doing whatever the fuck you want um, and not having your will subordinated to anything else, then there's all kinds of authorities. Necessity is an authority, right? Like even if you're just doing work in a factory and you're collaborating with a bunch of people, 
to get the shit done, you can't just do whatever you want. There are lots of forces acting upon you that, and you must do this, that, and the other if you want to do, right? Um, and so that's kind of interesting to me. And it, and it reminds me kind of, of like the right wing idea of freedom these days as like, whatever the fuck I want to do, I'm just going to ignore the reality of a virus and a pandemic. And like, I'm going to like, I don't want to wear a mask, right? As <laughs> I'm if- a sovereign citizen. Yeah, yeah, exactly. As as if you can just deny the necessity of reality and like, well, shit, you're going to be subordinated to death pretty soon, motherfucker. Like, like, so, uh, you know, I think the point is that true freedom has to have some recognition of like what reality and the good actually are. And so to me, like submitting to necessity or submitting, you know, to, to the reality of a situation um, means that autonomy and authority can't go together, but it begs the question or invites the question, I should say, of, um, what is good and, and like who's deciding what's good. It's pretty obvious for some of us when there's a pandemic. It's pretty obvious when you have to like get out of the car's way that's coming at you. But, uh, when it comes to kind of, you know, certain people deciding about like what's required for the revolution, I think that gets a little trickier, right? Yeah. How many, how many people during the pandemic? started to understand or to a certain extent sympathize with the quote authoritarianism of China. Uh, yeah. Because, or you know, Vietnam. For sure. or Vietnam, because yeah. before it was all like China's an authoritarian state, but at least they could like mandate a vaccine in which all of their people, yeah. <laughs> you know, it- I mean, well, I remember when, when a bunch of liberal commentators and journalists were like, you know what? Good for China, but we should not do that here. I'm like, what do you, what, why? What, what? Like, like, if, like, this is what the state, like, the state should step in for this kind of, this exactly an emergency. So what the fuck are you talking about? Yeah, that, it's a really, it's like, like the, the false conception of American freedom, where like the most deluded dipshits that have ever drawn breath should be able to like, you know, infect their local PTA meetings and school board meetings with COVID. <laughs> yes. You know, we could just freely kill each other. That's what freedom is. People, people could, who don't yeah. even, they homeschool their kids, but they're going to the school board meetings to scream at people anyways, because they watch television <laughs> instead of doing that. By education. the way, I, th- but- I think, I think Ch- China is about at COVID zero right now again. And, and we're about to go into another wave. We're at COVID like one seven- trillion. <laughs> yeah. But that like, like it, I think it's, you know, it's kind of a false, a false dichotomy in a sense, right? Like if you're talking about sort of like the, the ability of the individual to do like, like the things that they want to do. Like you look at places like Vietnam. You know, so you have this communist dictatorship and they sort of tell you like, 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 here's what's going to happen. We're smashing the virus. If you disagree, we're putting you in jail. Like we're, we're deleting the Facebook posts. If you spread like anti-vax shit, um, and that works in a sense pretty well. But then you have democratic countries like, like Norway. Norway has done in- exceptionally well during the pandemic. Not as good as Vietnam. I'll grant them that, but, but pretty close. Um, and it's in a, it's in a much more democratic fashion where you say, okay, you know, we have our sort of like, you know, social consent mechanism in our state. Uh, and, and, you know, we sort of get together and we have a, like a, a, dis, like a collective decision process, or at least like the government that we elected is going to do this. And then they impose the rules and, uh, to, to sort of like try to deal with the, 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 the situation allocate the coercion that needs to happen to suppress the virus. And if you're just saying like, well, any jack off person can just sort of do whatever they want if they're really loud and annoying, you know, that just fucks everyone else up, you know, and it reduces the amount of freedom. Like just, you know, for a whole year, everyone in Vietnam, yeah, you could go to a restaurant, you know, you could do like it was, it was fine because there was no virus circulating. And so, you know, we, we in the U.S. were living the worst of all of both worlds. We have this putative freedom to just go and die of COVID. Um, while at the same time, not, you know, enjoying the like the, 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 you know, supposedly coercive like aspects of having a welfare state and whatnot. And so, you know, freedom of the grave, basically. Um, and that, you know, I think suggests to me that like th- this is the kind of reasoning that will need to happen around around climate change to be like, 
we are in a, a we're in the shit. We are in the deep cack. And like the there's coercive actions will need to be allocated across the world. And so we could do we could we could do that. We could do that in a sort of collective democratic fashion where people get at least a little bit of input into how the how the coercion is going to be allocated. Or we could do it in an authoritarian version like Vietnam, where it's like, okay, sorry, these businesses are going to be stamped out and fuck you. It's it's not my problem. Or you could just not do it and everyone dies. And that's the American like approach. And so like that's our, you know, that's the situation we face. And I think that, you know, the 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 two the two readings kind of like meld in each other pretty well to sort of illustrate the stakes, I guess. Yeah, and also in the sense that uh, you know, demanding or 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 doing as you say rec- recognizes the need to admit or to see or to recognize. I hate repeating words, but to see the the authority of nature itself, and I think that that is yeah. something that Americans have a really hard time. Uh, with, you know, as much as we love going hike, going on hikes and going, you know, to our, our vacation homes, uh, those are, that's, that's man-made wilderness, right? We've constructed that as wilderness. Yeah. Uh, it is not recognizing the power of nature itself, that, that nature is an agent in this whole thing that, as Bukharin says, is a factor in this triangle that we, that, that now we have to act in order to fix. To straighten out, to bring back into the equilibrium, as he would say. Yeah, that was my thought when you were saying, Alexia. It's, it's like I'm, I'm, uh, I'm feeling thirsty in my factory shift or on my hike or whatever. But I'm not going to drink any water because I'm not going to submit to the dictates of big nature. You know, <laughs> I don't. <laughs> That's real. Sometimes nature is, it's like, it's going to force you. It's going to force you to drink water. And if you refuse, you're going to fucking die. And like, that's, that's the thing that Americans refuse to believe. Nature is the biggest capitalist of them all. (laughs) You you take a little bit and it fucking deteriorates a little bit more of of itself, (laughs) I guess. I don't know. I don't know how else to put it. Um, There's a cost. To everything. That's how you put it. Yeah. There's a cost to to what we do to the natural world. Uh, the social, it's a technological cost. It's all of those things all in one. Yeah. Well, that's all the questions I had. Um, any last uh, any last comments? Alex? I don't really. Uh, I, I mean, I hope that you both enjoyed reading Bukharin. I don't know. Had you had you read him before? Yeah. I'd read a little bit of him before, not that, not any of that book though. So I enjoyed that part. He's, did you read uh, the right. Did you read the ABCs of communism? I don't think so. No. That's like that's his most famous. Uh, uh, it's a crash course of capital. So it's like a so capital is oh nice capital so, is like what yeah. three thousand pages. The ABCs of com- of communism is two hundred pages or something like that. It's, Perfect. Yeah. Down. There we go. The Reader's Digest version Excellent. of of uh, of socialism. Exactly. That's exactly what it was. Right on. From a guy who knew his shit. That's great. Well, appreciate it, Alex. Appreciate you, uh, you know, educating the audience about some great Marxist thinkers who were talking about shit that's can you know relevant to us today and it was relevant to them back a hundred years ago. So hopefully, we learn from the process and. Uh, have some respect for our relationship to nature. Uh, so thanks for coming on. I, and you know, everybody should, should, uh, you know, listen to how often do you, do you, uh, do you guys release your episodes in the pod there? So we, tell us a bit about your podcast before you go. We release an episode every week, uh, weekend, usually Sunday night. Uh, and we do full episodes and what we call half episodes. So full episodes are devoted to Rhode Island politics and mutual aid. So, we talk about we talk awesome. we talk shit about Rhode Island politics for about an hour, and then we have a local mutual aid come on and tell us about like what they do, why it's important, how people can get involved, and then on the Fantastic. on the off weeks, so what we call half episodes. Uh, there's three co-hosts. I'm one of them. There's also Andy and Evan. Uh, we one of us will do. Something that like just interests us. So, for example, Evan usually 
covers a movie through a Marxist lens. So I think the last one that they did was uh, Josie and the Pussycats. So like, <laughs> so like nice. it, it was Evans reading and leftist understanding of that movie. Uh, Andy, for example, usually does more literary analysis. I think his last half episode was on Carl Sandburg, the poet. So we talked about nice. Sandberg as the, the working class man's poet, read some poetry from sure. Sandberg. And I usually do theory or things like this where I interview uh, people who aren't necessarily from Rhode Island, but people who are interested in theory. Uh, so I'm kind of the, the chameleon of the, of the half episodes. I do just the things that interest me most, but uh, we're, cool. we are much more active on Instagram than we are on Twitter. I'm trying to get into the Twitter world right now. It's hard for me, uh, because <laughs> I have a lot of dumb, hot takes. And I also really like desecrating, um, conservative memes, which is my big thing right now. You know, like those, you know, like those like patriotic skeleton memes that say like some shit about like, touch my flag and I'll like, I don't know. I'll come after you or some dumb shit like that. I love taking those images and just like <laughs> writing something totally dumb. Uh, on Instagram, I think my dumbass is at PLR pod. And no, I'm sorry. On Instagram, I think it's at PLR podcast. That's Evan. Evan runs that and they are much more on the ball and professional about it. The Twitter is at PLR pod and that's me and that is unprofessional as hell. But you know, if your listeners want to follow along and but see some pr professionalism is a bourgeois concept. Fuck that. It's true. Yeah. It's true. <laughs> but, but Evan actually does like the groundwork of like sharing what mutual aids are doing and like calling attention to protests and stuff like that. Like the stuff that I should be doing, but that, uh, skeleton memes just occupy my interest much, much more. <laughs> Each to their own weapons, my friend. Don't worry. <laughs> yeah. uh, well, we appreciate having you on. We'll link to the Instagram, the Twitter, all the things. And, uh, yeah, be best of luck, comrade, and fighting the good fight. Thanks for coming on. Thank you guys so much for having me. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.